Welcome to the Back to Square Point podcast with your host Chong and Kedrick. This is a podcast where we will have conversations about training, nutrition, and philosophy, taking you back to square one. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Welcome to the uh, Back to Square Quan podcast, and today we have a very interesting guest. Um, for those who don't know, Dr. Jen Case here plays a very big and integral role in Renaissance periodization. But if um, if you don't know who she is, that's because she isn't very active on social media. Um, but she is very, very well versed in female nutrition, and of course, she's been the publisher i believe of the renaissance periodization book for female nutrition correct me one of the co-authors mel davis and i work together on there that we one. go yeah so she she definitely knows the stuff but um her instagram is mostly just about her uh jujitsu and her pets um which <laughs> you can definitely follow if you're interested so welcome to the podcast jen well thank you for having me guys yeah so um I don't know about you, Kedrick, but I personally feel like female nutrition is something that a lot of people don't really talk about too much. I know it's kind of the new talk of the town, especially with how sort of social society has developed over the last 10 years, which, you know, a much more heavier emphasis on sort of the female gender as a whole. But um, Jen, I, I guess my question for you there is uh, what are some big differences i know this is gonna be a pretty broad question what are some big differences between like nutrition specifically for females um compared to males and i know you've coached well myself personally um, but i also do know that you're very well versed in that area uh so the biggest thing with women is what stage of life are they in uh for fellas once you guys go through puberty until you're pretty much an octogenarian your nutrition won't change that much because you guys don't have the same hormonal fluctuations that ladies go through. Um, but when you're working with the ladies, when you're working with a youth uh, female versus uh, an adolescent that's starting to go through the pubescent changes, and then they get into their childbearing years. And then if you're working with a pregnant athlete into postpartum time, into perimenopausal time, into menopausal time. And so the way that their hormones are, are fluctuating and what's happening with their body is going to cause some serious changes. And that's if they're healthy. Um, you got to remember PCOS and hypothyroidism are very prominent in females. So you also have to worry about those hormonal changes impacting their diet as well. Mm, mm, very interesting. I like what Chung said. I do think that there's a shift in, in, the, in the fitness world um, towards focusing a little bit more specific in nutrition, even in the research, you know, like one of the questions, I mean, I'm currently doing my PhD. And when I was like submitting my sort of like research proposal, the uh, reviewers asked, oh, are you going to do this only in males? Or are you going to include females as well? And we know that like research in females are quite scarce, but there's definitely a shift going towards that. So it's very interesting uh to to hear that there are a lot of differences you know when it comes to the like nutrition for females and i think just how you briefly mentioned just now the different phases in life uh would affect the females affect females differently would also probably be a contributing factor to why uh doing research in females specifically is so difficult but i definitely think that there is room to grow uh in terms of female specific nutrition. So I, I, I know there isn't as much out there, but let's just say, uh, what would you, if I would 
to say that this is just cool, right? We have a female, right? Maybe around sort of like uh, late 20s to like early 30s, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say the biggest difference for that female uh, be like compared to men around the same age? I mean, it technically doesn't matter what age the man is because like you said, uh, we we are quite constant. We're the same. We're we're very mundane, (laughs) boring creatures, unlike females. Yeah. And the only reason why I quoted that age is because that is in general where I see that females tend to seek coaching. Obviously you have the younger ones as well, but the younger females, they tend to be a little bit more robust. I let's just say a little bit more robust because their hormonal levels are still quite stable. Unless of course uh, we can just assume that they are healthy, but for like the 28 to like maybe uh, 28 to like late thirties around that age, what would you say would be the biggest difference? Uh, assuming that they're, they're healthy, the biggest difference is just going to be less muscle mass. Uh, typically, some females are just jacked, but uh, typically... Uh, I don't like, know, Jen. You look pretty jacked. I mean, looking at you on the camera right now, I'm like, yeah. Ooh, I need to work on my shoulders more. <laughs> uh, but, you know, typically your, your male athlete, they're going to be around 5 to 10% body fat, whereas your female athlete, she's usually going to be 18 to 25% body fat. And so with the less muscle mass on the individual their calorie needs for the day are going to be a little bit lower and that's going to make their protein and their carb needs a little bit lower compared to their male counter. Mm. Mm. So I guess you mentioned Jen about like body fat percent. And I think that's very, very obvious. Like generally speaking, males would always have a lower body fat percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we look at it from like a health perspective and people always yeah. say, Oh, the lower, the less fat you have, the healthier you are. Um, would, would that kind of be like an indication or I, I don't know, like I don't have any data backing this up. Could that be like a correlation to kind of say like females generally have a much tougher time when it comes to like all those health markers, um, especially given that, you know, they're naturally going to be sitting at a much higher body fat anyway, or is that something which is just like, Oh, it's normal. Generally females have a high body fat anyway. And that is Okay. Um, getting it down is obviously good, but we don't need to sort of get down to the level of what males would, for better or for worse terms, generally sit. Yeah. Well, with the females, um, you have to think about essential body fat. So how much body fat do you need for proper functioning? Um, Males, you guys, you know, you don't go through um, menstruation and childbearing and all all of that. So your estrogen levels are obviously nowhere near what ours are. And uh, for proper body functioning to be able to produce that estrogen that you need, you really should be sitting at 12% body fat or more for the ladies that I've coached. Once they start dropping below 18%, which they can get down. uh, If you look at the research, they can technically get down to 12% and still be considered healthy. But once they start dropping under that 18%, that's usually when they start to lose uh, their menstrual cycle and start having problems there. And, you know, a lot of athletes are like, great, no period. But the problem is that's usually a sign that they're not producing enough estrogen, and that can lead to a cascade of events called the female athlete triad, where they end up putting themselves at a very high risk for osteoporosis and other problems, not only at that immediate stage in their life, but as they get older, it's going to make things a lot harder. Mm-hmm. that's very interesting so you mentioned the female athlete triad for our listeners out there that actually don't know what it is uh can you briefly explain what that is so triad basically probably you have three factors so maybe what those three factors are 
Yeah, the three factors. The big one is uh, uh, lack of a menstrual cycle or amenorrhea or just skipped periods. They may have one like every three months. Um, the next one is going to be that osteoporosis, decrease in bone density. And then they're also going to start to be dealing with a lot of fatigue and decrease in performance that way. And mm. so those, those are the big three factors that we look at in healthcare. It's like, okay, what's happening with this female? Um, why is she not performing or why is she just not feeling well? What's going on? Mm. And another term that gets thrown around with the female athlete triad is like red relative energy deficit. Or So maybe can you explain what that is and how that plays a role as well? The relative energy deficit in relationship to your diet or which yep. party? Uh, okay. So, I mean, yeah, just in general and then in yeah. relationship to the diet after. So your uh, relative energy deficit is looking at um, the amount of calories. Oh, sorry. One of the dogs is moving the table <laughs> uh, is looking at your calorie deficit during the day. Uh, and it's going to be on the individual level compared to how much you're putting out versus how much you're taking in. Um, and with that female athlete triad, because your, um, because your resting metabolism is coming down, it's going to make you burn less calories throughout the day, which means you take in less calories uh, if you're wanting to create a weight loss deficit. Mm. So if, you, if you've gone through the female athlete triad, right, and now you're a retired athlete, but you never properly went through a maintenance phase or anything to bring your thyroid function and everything back up, you could be at risk of gaining too much weight, you know, as you become mm. not so active. You're not like an in-season or competitive athlete anymore. Mm. So from what I'm hearing, it's essentially the maintenance calories that you assume uh, to be in the past no longer applies, but it's actually much lower because of certain factors. Uh, Would you say that the relative energy deficit affects uh, females more than males? Because you mentioned the role of hormones and different phases of life and um, things like that. I, I, I'm not even sure how factors like childbearing would actually affect that because, you know, like uh, when we go through, I mean, not we, but when females go through childbearing, right, uh, uh, they do lo- lose bone mass and things like that. So will that kind of like drop their sort of like uh, assume maintenance level and how would that affect uh, their the, the relative energy deficit? It really depends on what happens during pregnancy and post-pregnancy because um, depending on the individual, assuming she's healthy, okay, not a high-risk pregnancy where she put on bed rest, but assuming she's healthy, uh, the female can actually continue to do whatever activity they did when they got pregnant. They can continue that same activity throughout their entire pregnancy. So if they're uh, a weightlifter, they can actually continue to weight train throughout the entire pregnancy. Um, Obviously, they're not going to be putting on their weight belt and they're not going to want to do anything where they're laying on their back or their stomach. But they can still do squats. They can still do deadlifts. They can do like a seated chest press and things like that. All of that can still be done throughout the entire pregnancy. They just have to be aware of their core temperature because they, they can't like max out okay? because they can't get mm. too super hot. But they can continue to moderate to uh, exercise at a moderate level. So when you're looking at, you know, your reps in reserve, if they still got, you know, four or five reps in the tank, they're good to go. So they can exercise throughout their entire pregnancy. So that's going to keep their muscle mass up which will keep their resting energy expenditure up throughout the entire pregnancy. Plus they're creating a new life in there. So that's actually going to cause more chemical reactions to be occurring. And that's going to help elevate their resting energy expenditure. Once they deliver the child, if they choose to breastfeed, just the act of producing milk burns over 600 calories a day. Wow. So that's how wow. 
Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's something you don't know every day. <laughs> uh, and so that's going to help keep that energy expenditure up. And or if they don't breastfeed, you know, as long as they stay active and keep that their lean muscle mass up, they'll keep their resting energy expenditure up. The problem occurs when uh, if they become pregnant and they just kind of stop all activity. Uh, and then once the child is born, if they continue to not be physically active, uh, you know, just, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, kids take time. They're very demanding, They're tiny little dictators. And so if the moms don't make any time for themselves to continue their resistance activity, that's when you're going to start to see that decrease in their resting energy expenditure simply because they're losing muscle mass by not being able to train. Mm. That's actually really, really interesting. So I think one thing that most females, uh, I think this is more, and and this is just very anecdotal because it's just sort of the trend that I see and I don't know if any sort of scientific data to back this, but it does seem that females that have a very regular menstrual cycle, um, by, bearing not during a pregnancy stage, uh, pre-menopausal tends to also go down that route of, and we talk about calories and maintenance, they always tend to have the struggle of trying to get food in. And it, I think a lot of it comes down to sort of like how progesterone and estrogen plays a role, particularly in like your follicular phase and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes the hunger levels tend to get quite messed. Okay, maybe I should rephrase that. They're hungry, but they don't feel like eating. And I think this is something which is more common in females. And I see this a lot in female athletes, even not even athletes, just females in general uh, compared to males. How, how would you, or what would be some things that you would look at, particularly for, you know, an athlete or maybe just a regular female who's like, Hey, I know that I need to eat better or eat more, but during that time of the month, or there's just something that is just not allowing me to eat. (laughs) Um, yeah. how would you go, how would you go about that? Like, are there, are there certain like blood tests or anything that you should you know, look, look into a little bit deeper or how would you approach that, Jen? I'm not aware of any blood tests that are needed for that. Cause typically, uh, well, I guess there's three, I was going to say two, but there's really three main ways in which a woman is going to respond during her menstrual cycle. Either she's going to have major cravings and be taking in too many calories. Um, she may be one of the lucky ones that's just not affected by a period and it's just another day of the week and they're just going to track that along or third option, like what you're talking about where they just don't want to eat at all. And that's normally also associated with having higher amount of like cramps and mm. your stomach is, and they just, they don't feel good. Right. And all of us are that way, right. When you don't feel good, you don't particularly want to eat. And for those ladies, what you're really thinking about there is what is the minimum amount of food I'm going to require them to eat so that they can meet their calorie needs for that day. Right. Because think about when you guys have an upset stomach, you don't want to put anything in there because that's just going to make it worse. So for those ladies, I usually recommend um, very low volume foods that are going to meet their nutrient needs. So things like uh, casein pudding or beef jerky to meet the protein needs on the carbohydrate side, um, you know, dried fruit or pasta are usually the best options because those are a lot of carbs for very low volume of food. And then nuts, if they need to get any fat in, because that is the most concentrated form of fat that you can find. Mm. Mm. 
Mm, what about like micronutrient needs? Because you know, like things that are rich in micronutrients tend to also be uh, satiating, which is like fruits and vegetables. So if mm-hmm. the and we know that micronutrients also play an important role, uh, regulation and all that kind of and stuff. Yeah. So how would you recommend like the intake of micronutrients for someone who just doesn't feel like eating? Right. So for them, um, the biggest thing uh, for your your females of childbearing age, the main micronutrient they really want to make sure they get enough of is iron because, you know, they are going to be losing blood basically uh, each month. So you want to make sure that their, their iron needs are good. And most females um, are already low on iron. So it's pretty common for me to recommend an iron supplement, especially the females are talking about dealing with fatigue Um, and then taking in a daily multivitamin multimineral is, you know, always a good choice. With that daily multivitamin, multimineral, I always recommend trying to find one that uh, you can either cut the capsule in half or requires two capsules, two gummies, two tablets, whatever, and separate the dose into morning and evening because supplements like that, they're very, very concentrated. And when you put that into your small intestine, it's not going to get absorbed all the way, right? So if you separated doses, that's going to give your small intestine a little bit better of an opportunity to absorb all those micronutrients as they go through the system. Ah, so it's sort of like waking up and, and I guess this is obviously just based off the dosage that is on the bottle itself. So it's better uh-huh. to go like, okay, have one in the morning and have one before going to bed. Is that, is that sort yeah. of the general? Just later in the day, like, you know, at another meal, you never want to take those on an empty stomach because they're highly concentrated and it will cause some gastric upset. So just, you know, at a meal, afternoon, evening meal, but just spread it out. So you're not, cause you got these absorptive sites in your small intestine. And if you overwhelm them, it's just going to pass right through and you don't want to, you know, excrete out your money. You want to absorb it. Right. Mm, so expensive shit as they would call it. <laughs> yeah. Separate out that dose so that there's more time for it to be absorbed. Mm, mm, yeah. I think, I think like fatigue is actually quite common in, in like females, uh, mm-hmm. especially like I said, during the time of uh, menstruation, you know, I actually have an athlete, uh, where I coach and she has very frequent menstruation. It's almost like the whole month she's having her menstruation because yeah. it's like, cool. What she like, essentially she has it twice a month almost. Right. And I've, I'm no expert in that area. And I think that she should see like a medical professional and I've mm-hmm. asked her to do so, but she like, she hasn't gotten an appointment like for the past like three months and she only recently got it, which I'm very happy, but she's also like consistently like, uh, she says she complains about like fatigue as well. So definitely something to to re- really keep in mind for all the female listeners out there. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, for some of our, uh, like females out there, be- because at least from my culture, at least, and we don't tend to have a lot of uh, red meat as well. So like iron content in general is also low and protein content in general also is also low. I think that for most people who are like, uh, who consume like iron naturally would come from like red meats or like stuff from like like animal innards and organs which some people find really disgusting you know so in general they Mm. don't get as much of that from uh whole food so uh supplementation is required you know we're not trying to say that oh you know you have to supplement everything because you can't get it so but yeah it's also very interesting how you mentioned that yeah if you can separate the doses that'll be uh really good and I think one thing to kind of like mention and pull it back a little is that all the recommendations that you've been giving and we've been talking about so far has been for 
females assuming that they are healthy, right? So mm-hmm. maybe you can share a little on like, what do you mean by, hey, you know, how do I know if I don't fall under the category of uh, unhealthy. not healthy? <laughs> or what are some signs that I probably should look into things a little bit uh, further? Like, for example, I I don't, like I say, I don't really know much, but a female who is having her period almost like twice a month, right? That to me isn't uh, normal. So, I, but I might be wrong. So maybe you can uh, shed some light on. And, yeah. And, and just before you go as well, Jen, um, we also have this thing because um, we're powerlifters and let's be honest, it doesn't mean you're powerlifter, you're healthy. <laughs> and there's, there's always a stigma. So, like like Hedrick said as well, like how does one know, particularly for a female, if they're healthy or not? And mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that if you're exercising every day, it doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. You know, you're just moving, right. which is great. Don't get me wrong, but there's obviously going to be other factors to maybe like an indication, like Hedrick said, like hey, something mm-hmm. is actually wrong. Um, where should I look into it? What should I look into? Yeah. So with your athlete, the the period twice a month. I, yeah, she needs to go talk with her OBGYN. Uh, it could be something as simple as she just needs to get on um, a birth control simply to regulate her cycle because she's basically depositing an egg every other week. So yeah, there's something going on there and uh, the signaling within her is just a little askew and that can easily be remedied with medication. Um, and usually whenever you're looking at, you know, what is... Um, kind of a sign that they may not be un- may not be completely healthy is their body just not responding the way it's supposed to. And you were able to identify that because, you know, you understand that the period is supposed to happen once a month with her. It's happening twice a month, not the typical response. You probably need to refer them on. Um, when you're wondering, does my athlete have hypothyroidism? You know, you've got them on this great training plan. You've got them on a set diet plan. Your, you know, their calories are where they should be and their body is just not responding. Uh, either it's just not losing weight or their energy is just not there. Something is going on and you're not getting the response that based on the literature you should be getting. That's usually a sign that they need to go and get some blood tests done. Um, same thing with PCOS. You know, when, when your athlete is just, you're really nailing it in the gym and they're hitting it hard and their body is just not responding. Um, it's probably a sign that they just need to go and get tested. And a lot of the, the different things that we talk about, it's easy to get it all done in one blood panel that they can just mm-hmm. test and see where your athlete is at. Mm-hmm. So an, an interesting topic and <clears throat> for our listeners out there, I'm not going to play favors to, to this. Um, I have my thoughts, but I'm not going to talk about it on this particular episode. You, you brought up birth control. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that there's a huge, huge sort of like, not even just from a health perspective, but just like a, philosophical perspective on a female should be on birth control or if you're brought up staunch catholic a female should not be on a birth control um and we've obviously got people who say yeah birth control is the way to go freedom speech anything um but from a more health perspective if someone were to like you mentioned jen to go on a birth control to help regulate their cycle um be it regulating up or down what would be a good form of birth control? Because there's a lot out there. There's your copper tubes. There's like hormonal replacement therapies and stuff like that. Like where, again, I don't know if you have any expertise or ideas on this. Like where would one look to? And I guess it's for females listeners out there. If you want to get on birth control, what is the 
what are some of the better options out there? Um, because in the end of the day, like we don't want to really muck around with your hormones, right? We want to make sure that they're nice and steady. But we know that with birth control, the end of the end game of every any birth control, really, um, yeah. particularly for females, is going to be hormone regulation. <laughs> yes. Uh, it really just kind of depends on uh, the female and what's comfortable for her. Um, because at least here in the States, obviously, uh, whatever is available has been heavily tested. And your doctor is not going to be able to put you on any type of birth control that has been deemed unsafe by the FDA. So they can kind of rest assured that whatever, whether it's going to be an oral contraceptive or an implant um, or an injection, it's been heavily tested and has been shown to be safe for prolonged period of time. Um, you do get into some issues when you've been on the birth control for 30 or more, 20, 30 years, then they're going to start talking to you um, about risks. And the main risk that they're usually worried about is going to be uh, bone density. So when you do get on your birth control, your doctor is usually going to recommend that you also take a calcium and vitamin D supplement just to help ensure that your bone density is not taking a hit from the hormones being regulated or changed through the, the, the birth controls you're consuming. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I think that as like certain factors also uh, come into role because now we're talking about like more of a hormonal like control, right? So obviously an IUD will, will work very differently from uh, like a hormone-based birth control. And I know certain females also take birth control, not for the purpose of birth control, but for like, uh, like, skin regulation right like it gives you like better skin or like it reduces like acne or even sometimes it like stops like hair growth right there are things like that because obviously uh so it, it is actually quite interesting that uh what people use birth control for not just for the birth control and like because it in research as well it'd be like cool right sometimes if like the females if they're on the pill you know we don't have to account for their menstruation per se we just like okay cool just get them to have the don't take the inactive pill you know just continue so that we kind of like offset the menstruation phase during research so the whole topic of like birth control is like and how it affects uh hormones are actually very interesting and i think it's a very good point that you brought up that uh females uh who on birth control should consume some form of like calcium mm. or and vitamin d supplement because of bone density and because like that to me isn't uh, intuitive per se, you know, I like, and I know that a lot of females, not a lot, but some females are also like not big on dairy, which, which is primarily where most people get their uh, source of calcium from. And obviously with vitamin D as well, with like how sedentary the nature is and like depending on the time of the, the, the seasons of the year, you might not be getting enough vitamin D from exposure to sunlight. So yeah, definitely like listeners out there do, do, do consider that. And, I think if I were to kind of like uh, speak a little bit more broadly, you mentioned just now when I uh, asked you the question about, and Chung asked you the question as well about certain signs that females uh, can take note of. And a lot of that is uh, for the exercising population. You know, we have that performance kind of like, we use the performance marker as a standard, right? Because we have something that we're working towards. What about, the females out there who actually don't like really train hard. You know, we have those recreationally uh, trained females who just go in the gym. They just want to like sweat and feel good after work. Right. And they're not really seeking progress in the gym. You know, they're just like exercise is my form of stress release. And I don't necessarily need the progress because I feel like if I'm pushing my heart too self, 
pushing myself too hard in the gym, it gives me more stress, which is counterintuitive of why I exercise in the first place. So if you do not have some form of performance or exercise progression as your marker, what are certain signs? So this is just in general, recreationally trained or even some females that don't uh, train. Train at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So for them, I would say probably the two main things are any kind of unexplained weight gain. And then if they have unexplained fatigue, right? If you're sleeping eight, nine, 10 hours a night, but you're still heavily fatigued throughout the day, something's going on. And then, you know, if you're eating what you've been eating no more, uh, you know, for the past 10 years, and now you're suddenly starting to see this gradual increase in weight, something's going on. So those are kind of the two that are easy to kind of see with you, but you got to be honest with yourself, especially when it comes to that unexplained weight gain, you know, <laughs> or if your diet or alcohol consumption has changed throughout the year you ha- or throughout your lifetime, you have to expect your weight to change. But if it truly has not changed and your weight is changing, then that's probably a sign that there's something going on. Mm-hmm. I, when it comes to weight, people often mention like, like or thyroid, you know, and you mentioned hypothyroidism just now as well. How common is it and what are some of the causes and actually effect? Because, you know, some people, I don't want people to use like, oh, I'm an excuse. Like I said, you just got to be, you got to be honest with yourself. Oh, I'm gaining weight. Uh, It's my thyroid, you know, it's the, it's the same people. My TSH and T4 is not functioning. It's yeah. Overly they, functioning. Just, they just say something like that. It's like, oh, you know, like, the reason why I'm not eating this is like, oh, I'm gluten intolerant. You know, just like throwing it out for the sake of, uh, sake of it, just to like, uh, confirm their bias. So, what are certain signs of someone that might actually have, uh, true, uh, hypothyroidism, and what could actually lead to it? Because you mentioned just now as well, if you're if you've been doing something for the past ten years and you're fine, and then suddenly you see this, uh, shift, right? Uh, what could potentially contribute to it? So with the hypothyroidism, the exact cause, we don't know. That's kind of what's being researched right now. Uh, What's nice about it is that it can easily be tested for. Um, You know, we figured out that there's actually three different thyroid hormones that we can test for in the blood um, because it used to be they just looked at uh, just your thyroid stimulating hormone, but now there's two others that they'll look at as well. And so it's, it's actually becoming easier for your healthcare provider to identify whether or not you have hypothyroidism. So once they get it identified by, um, one of your thyroid marking hormones being out of balance in the blood, they'll be able to put you on a synthetic uh, thyroid hormone and get those levels back up where they need to be. So unlike gluten sensitivity, which is uh, very questionable as to whether it impacts with hypothyroidism, it does impact, um, I I think it's up to like a third, 30% or so of females. It's it's a high amount. Yeah. But the good news is it's, it's really easy to find. It's, it's, it's an easier one to identify. Uh, with the gluten sensitivity, right now, it's very questionable as to how much of that is true celiac disease, which you can test for, versus kind of playing out, um, you know, what, what you think is going to happen, right? You eat something and you're like, okay, this is going to upset my stomach, and then it upsets your stomach. It's like, so sebo yourself into thinking it's, it's bad for you. Yeah. And there's been a, quite a few studies that have shown that, that that's happening. People, uh, they, they think they're going to have this certain reaction. And so they consume, and it's not just with gluten. They can do this with all kinds of different foods. They assume, okay, I'm going to consume this and my body is going to respond this way. And then lo and behold, when they take the, you know, the, the test at the end, you know, how are you feeling? They feel the way they said they were going to. So it's like, mm-hmm. 
good old um, good old good old self psychology is <laughs> yeah. always is always the best way to go when you're trying to um figure out what's best for your body um, it, for sure yeah. it it is uh, it is definitely interesting and we see that a lot of happening and I also don't want to sound like I'm be like enforcing a like stereotype but when it comes to eating I do think that. Uh, females tend to have a little bit more emotional response towards the eat. So it's like, ah, I'm going to feel crap when I eat this. Mm. So like in some certain cases, they could just be like nociboing themselves into actually feeling it. And <laughs> it, yeah, but I think something that we have to throw out here as well, because we talk a lot about like getting tested and then uh, sort of like being on medication and then uh, using some form of like medical support to kind of like reset or balance things out. So to our listeners out there, it might be like, oh my gosh, like, am I like, am I a problem? Am I having a problem, right? <laughs> that I need to go on all this medication. It sounds like I'm like sick, you know? So uh, maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about like the notion of like, cool, how like quote unquote safe this is or how uh, will it affect them in the long run? Or because sometimes people, you know, they don't want to get tested because they are fearful of knowing the results and what they must do because they have that negative perception on like, Oh my gosh! If I th- if I'm taking a lot of medication, it must be really bad for me, you know. So maybe you can like shed some light, dispel some myths along that area. So when we talk about hypothyroidism um, and the the fatigue and the unexplained weight gain, we're not talking about you know, oh man, Mondays suck. I'm I'm a little tired. We're talking about all day, every day. They just are dragging. Like it's it's fatigue. It's not just a kind of a nap would be nice. You know, there, it's a very noticeable impact that it has on your life. Uh, and with the, the unexplained weight gain, it's not just, okay, you know, a pound or two each, each year or so I'm gradually getting a little softer in the middle. It's a noticeable increase, uh, or lack of weight loss when they're trying to lose weight, not just a small gradual. So, uh, if you're fearful that, you know, you need to go and get tested and you have all these things wrong with you, you have to first be like, is there something very noticeably different? Okay. Not just a little bit of tired, a little bit of weight gain. Um, so that, that's kind of the one thing It's just, if you're just a little off one day, you're just a little off. You're having a bad day. It's, it's not that big a deal. Um, and then with the thyroid, the synthetic thyroid supplements that are currently being prescribed by your doctor, again, they've been tested, um, you know, and so your doctor's not going to put you on something that is going to harm you. And they're actually still going to be testing your, your thyroid levels, um, at least twice a year, if not more frequently, because they're going to want to monitor your dosage and keep you nice and healthy. So it's kind of just, you know, I don't know. It's not, in my opinion, it's not one of the uh, drugs that you need to be concerned with because it's been around for a while and it's been thoroughly tested and as of yet has, has not been shown to be unsafe in the long term. Mm. So, I, I guess I have like a, well, not really a follow-up question, but I guess it's more sort of like a, it feels, at least for me, it flows like a natural transition to ask this. It's like, we've been talking a lot about females and sort of like the late 20, 30 athletes, either that or unhealthy. But we do know that when the time comes of the big menopause, um, things is. <laughs> like basically the last what 20 minutes of what we spoke of might not even be relevant (laughs) we can just basically disregard that if you're a listener who's like going through menopause or is going to have menopause we can basically well not disregard but a lot of things that we just kind of talked about is like hey like we kind of have to take everything we said with a grain of salt um 
and that's just because like menopause is this you know like and i'm definitely not an expert in this and it's great that i've got you here jenna it's something that i am you know like just baffled by like it's just so interesting that an individual can just go through a period of like yeah i'm just gonna completely stop producing this like right now and it's and it's not even like a one-off like disease it's literally like every female will have this issue um so when we when we talk about people going through like menopause um what are some things that people really need to watch out for especially when it comes to like uh the micronutrient standpoint so for example we've got a female athlete or a female who's exercising well eating well everything's going great kids fine sweet family's all good all of a sudden boom it hits and it's like (laughs) shit like do i eat the same do i do anything different like my energy levels are all over the place i'm getting more emotional throughout the month like what am i needing to do like i know this is a normal thing i don't need to go to the doctor because everyone's gone through this um yeah maybe you can talk a little bit more about like how can a female sort of like maybe alter her nutrition or maybe it's a lifestyle change that they might need to take maybe yeah. like do more weights do less cardio i don't know um so in terms of micronutrients really again the main focus is the calcium and vitamin d uh, and iron iron is always for the females that's kind of your big three um another kind of supplement issue to be aware of is casein uh, when my ladies start going through perimenopause and, and menopause, I usually do not recommend they take casein because that can make their night sweats worse. So it's simply a matter of comfort because, um, you know, waking up in a pool of your own sweat is horrible. And so I don't want my clients to, do, to deal with that. So remove the casein supplement. Uh, usually they can do dairy as long as they're not having any lactose issues. They can do dairy at bedtime instead of casein. So they still have that slow release protein but they don't have the, the night sweats and that sort of thing that they have to deal with if they take a casein supplement. Um, another big dietary change for them is going to be decrease in total calories because we don't know why, uh, but their resting energy expenditure, even though their activity stays up, right? Because they, they've done this where they've looked at, okay, we keep these ladies nice and active. Does that keep the resting metabolism up? No, it doesn't. We don't know why. It just doesn't. So they do need to start kind of bringing their cal- not a huge drop, maybe like 500 calories, just kind of bring it down a little bit. So they maintain that same weight that they've had throughout their lifetime. Uh, they do want to make sure they stay up on the resistance activity. That's the big one there. Uh, cardio is great if you like cardio, uh, but that resistance activity is going to help maintain their bone density because the weights will pull on the muscle, which pulls against the tendon, which helps to increase the bone density or at least slow the rate at which the bone loss occurs with age because of the way the bone turnover occurs. So maintaining resistance activity is a really big thing as you're going through menopause. You know, try and be that, be that older lady at the gym who's just showing up all the young men. You know, get in there, get your lifting in. Um, you know, you don't have to be a beast, but I would recommend three to four times getting in the gym, getting in a solid 60 minutes of true resistance training, moving those weights around will really help during that time. Uh, keeping your protein intake up. Again, you're looking at, you know, getting in about uh, a gram of protein per estimated uh, pound of lean mass. I'm going to keep that nice and high so that you have the bone density and you're able to support your muscle growth because you don't want to be losing muscle during that time. Um, carbohydrates. I normally start to kind of spread their carbohydrates out throughout the day 
almost like I would with someone who has diabetes. And that's more to just kind of keep their insulin levels nice and steady throughout the day so they don't have so much of a fatigue issue as they're going through. Because with the hormone fluctuations, that's going to be causing the fatigue. But if you add insulin spikes and drops on top of that, that's just going to compound what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So again, like removing the, the casein at night, it's more of a comfort issue. I'm trying to keep my clients you know, happy, comfortable, so they can live their lives and continue doing whatever it is they want to do. Mm-hmm. So I know that that that's been research done. You know, like people always say, "Oh, how much uh, does muscle mass contribute to your metabolism?" Right, and they actually mm-hmm. show that it's not such a like a big number. Like the most the things that contribute most to your metabolism is actually like the size of your organs. You know, and besides the activity level, of course, like we're talking about resting energy expenditure. And I mean, obviously, the studies were not done in like uh, menopausal or perimenopausal women. So would you say that? women who are going through uh, menopause or before menopause would potentially lose larger amounts of muscle mass compared to uh, their male counterpart at the same age. Because there's, there's often a myth that it's like, oh, if I get older, right, my metabolism slows down. You know, like people always say like, uh, you can eat so much, wait till you hit 30, you know, like then if you eat the same amount, you probably be... Uh, Twice uh, your size. You probably, yeah, you probably put on the size because like 30 is this magical age. Like the minute you hit your 30 birthday, you just gain all that weight, you know? And yeah. I do think as well, if I'm not mistaken, this might be a long time ago where I think uh, Mike Isretel, uh, your colleague, uh, posted a post saying that your age actually doesn't really determine your metabolism, but that is just more in general. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, right? Uh, because I know a lot of people would use the age as an excuse of g- gaining weight, but yeah. So your age does play a small role. There's, you know, 30 is usually the number. It can happen a little earlier, a little, little later, small decrease. We're talking like 1%, 2% decrease, okay? Very small. What also happens during that time, right? You leave college, you start a big boy, big girl job. You start having those tiny dictators running around your house. You got all these things happening that now you can't hit the gym, you know, seven days a week, twice a day, you know, your, your activity level just decreases. Most of our jobs, we're sitting at computers. We're not doing manual labor, you know? So all of these things kind of occur at that age because of just maturity, right? That's when you start entering the workforce and doing all this. So your activity level is starting to decrease. And that's what's going to play more of a role in the decrease in resting energy expenditure is that decrease in activity. Uh, You are correct, you know, that your organs play a big role. We can't control the size of our organs other than the size of our stomach, right? So focus a lot on muscle because that's something we can control, right? We can make our muscles nice and big and that's going to help to improve that energy expenditure. But if you're not able to go and work out or if you're not making that a priority, it's going to start to cause a decrease in resting energy expenditure. And I stress this a lot with uh, my male and female clients um, that you have to prioritize training. You know, it's not to say, you know, go lock your kids in the kennel and and, and go to train, right? But I'm they wish they could training though, session. Sure. Treat your training session like an appointment, you know, Mm. and maybe have an appointment twice a week, and that's great. You know, getting into the gym twice a week will help to maintain your energy level, but it needs to be an appointment that you don't miss and you don't push aside for this or that. Like, it's a set appointment, it's on your phone, right? You're going to go and you're going to get it done. 100%. And and it's like, in the the grand scheme of things, like, and unless if you're a mom, who's a single mom with eight kids who's all aged below 10. Yeah. It's a very, very specific scenario. But unless if you fit into that demographic, 
chances are, and if you're not sick, and if you work a normal job, and you're not a nurse who clocks in 80 hours a week, I don't know how you do that, by the way, mad respect to you guys, is that you would have at least four hours in a week. And like, I've worked out the math before and always pitch this to my clients who can't, who always comes back with the, with the argument of like, I don't have time. Like, look, mate, like it's less than 5% of your week. Surely you are able to find a way to make that 5%. You're going to spend more time eating than working out. Like that shouldn't be a big problem unless if some big life event happens. I think I think also like side note, a lot of this will come down to like stress stress management as well. Like if you're a very very stressful job, like I said, like the example of like if you work like an eighty hour work shift, you know you're not going to be in that mental state to you know go in if that if that workout pings on your phone. But for you know, and I'm just going to like label term here for most of the guys or girls that are listening to this. Chances are you don't work that kind of lifestyle. You probably work a standard maybe seven to seven at most, like a 12 hour day. That's very long, by the way, that's stretching it. You would still be able to get in like that four hours in a week. And I think it's sometimes it's, I hate to use this word, just don't be a little bitch. Just get in and just do the work and get out. <laughs> you know, it, it will help as, as Jen has obviously, obviously pointed it out. I also think like it's a perception, you know, like for people who are like not trained and trying to get into exercise, they view it, they view it as a chore or like an additional stressor and surely, right. And this is when I think that sometimes the fitness industry doesn't do people any favors. Like the first session you go in, you have to hit it hard, right? And then you absolutely feel demolished. And like on top of my work stress, I feel absolutely demolished right now. I don't want to come back. You know, I do think like you mentioned, you know, if you have two times a week to make that appointment, while we do encourage three to four times, but if it's really two times a week, perhaps let's just try two times a week. And when you start enjoying that two times a week, maybe you will make room for that third appointment. Maybe you make room for that fourth appointment. You know, I do think that when it comes to like, for example, maybe you can talk a little bit about this as well. Uh, like females who are like training during their menstruation, they'd be like, man, I'm really like massively cramping up. You know, I, 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 I'm lying down in the bed like a potato and I'm already feeling move. pain, you know? Like, yeah. you know, like if I have to forego my appointment in the gym that day, right? Just for like this, like next couple of days, you know, I, yeah, it is what it is. You know, you don't have to like smash yourself just because uh, for, for the sake of it, right? And I do think that kind of like understanding uh, your current situation, like say stress management and all that background and then uh, proportioning your exercise intensity to, to that would, would, would be quite important. So I guess the question for you to kind of like go into that is like, uh, should females train harder during their uh, menstruation or should they take a deload during their, their, their menstruation week? And uh, I know some females have irregular uh, menstruation. So how do you like go about it? Like so-called periodizing, periodization around your period, yeah. basically yeah. periodizing around your period. So it's going to depend on the female because uh, some ladies actually perform best while on their period. So for those ladies, you'd want peak week to be period week. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's crazy. Some of them, like, some athletes are just phenomenal during that week, whereas other athletes, yeah, they're, they're in pain. It is not a comfortable week for them. So taking a deload week would be best for them. And again, if they're on some sort of birth control that has, you know, a set pill cycle, so you know exactly when it's going to hit, 
it's really easy to plan for them. Plan their one month long training session or training cycle and boom, peak week or deload week is going to happen that week. Um, with your athletes whose cycle is a little less predictable, you have to be flexible. And not only the coaches, but the athlete as well, you just have to understand it's part of life. You can't, you know, put your life on hold because of your training sessions. If you're in an amount of pain in which you can't move, you don't go train, right? If you're yes. super and you got snot coming out of your nose and you can't, you know, you can't function, are you going to go train like that? Of course not. You take the time off, you recover, and then you go train. You don't beat yourself up for missing a training session because you got a sinus infection, so the same, same way, the ladies shouldn't beat themselves up if their menstruation ends up causing them to miss a training cycle. You know, you miss that day. Hopefully, you can get in the next day. But if you can't, you can't. Get in when you can and, you know, hit it when you can. And if you end up having to miss a session, you miss a session. You don't miss a month of sessions, right? Maybe it's just a week <laughs> at most. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get right back after it. It's not the end of the world. Nutrition and exercise are both cumulative effects, right? Mm -hmm. So one or two or, you know, having a chocolate bar here or there is not the end of the world, right? A chocolate bar every single day is going yes, to cause it. Yes. And it's the same thing with training, right? Missing one session every now and then, it's okay. Mm. And you mentioned oh, a little bit about like the nutrition effect, right? Uh, so is there anything females should like do differently uh, for the nutrition when it comes to uh, menstruation week? Not really. Uh, whenever they're feeling the hunger, it's actually more of a craving. And that's just from the hormonal differences. It's not necessarily or not truly a need for more energy consumption. Mm. So that time their, their macronutrients are going to stay pretty much the same micronutrients. You know, again, it's just mainly the iron is what they need to be aware of. So would right. you say as like a coach, let's just say, because, uh, that I mean, obviously it's very individual. But for females who have cravings during their menstruation week, would it be prudent uh, to actually say, "Cool, we will schedule like a if they are they have been like trying to lose, uh, they've been in deficit for a couple of weeks. Let's go in maintenance during your 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 menstruation uh, week. Is would that be a, a good idea? Because I know like it's quite uh, as a male coaching female athletes nutrition is. It takes a lot of empathy, you know, like I know that I, I there are certain female athletes where I said, cool, uh, during your period week, you don't weigh yourself at all because it messes with your head, you know, that, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I'm like two kilos heavier. What's going on? You know, like, and yeah. like, dude, the thing like is that the time of the month, Relax. It, it happens almost every month, you know, like from the, from an outsider perspective, you'd be like, man, it happens every, like, uh, your, your period is more accurate than the weather forecast, you know? So you, uh, you, but Sometimes it's just like hard. So I was like, cool, don't, don't weigh yourself. It probably doesn't really matter. So like, how would you say like, because if we do eat at maintenance level during menstruation, the weight was slightly, would generally go up just because they are consuming more food in general. So how would you, what are your thoughts around that? So with my athletes, um, if I have some that are just really, I don't, I don't know what the right word is. When the, the change on the scale just really affects them, then yeah, I'll ask them not to weigh in. Uh, but most of my females that I work with, they understand, they've been with me long enough, they understand, okay, menstruation week, we're going to spike up, you know, three, four, maybe even five pounds. Some of my ladies, I've had some spike as high as eight pounds in oh. one week. And you know, it's coming, you know, you're going to ride out that increase for most of the week. And then as soon as that week's over, you'll see a nice big drop. 
So rather than focusing on what are you weighing the, the days of your period, um, you know, I still have them check in, but I just keep reminding them that in a few days, we're going to see a really cool drop. Mm. And to just focus on mm. that upcoming number instead of what's happening right now. And it's, you know, like, and I, and I hate to say this because we obviously know that weight loss is never linear. It's always a weekly average, but it's always cool to, to, to see like, ah, I wait in on Wednesday, <laughs> wait on Friday, 10, like a five kilo drop. It's like, what's going on? It's like a three kilo drop. Whoa, that's massive. And you're like, wait a minute. Oh, wait, I just got done with my period. And it's like, you know, even that, I think like psychologically it can be like a good, yeah, I hate to Again, like this is never going to be accurate, but it's like a good boost to your morale. It's like, ah, oh, I was on my period. Yeah. I was heavy, but hey, I'm lighter than when I was when I started my period. You know, mm-hmm. and it can be that little edge that always gets, particularly for women. And, you know, again, as Kedrick said, I'm not going to be biased here. Women are generally the more emotional ones and it can always play like a more positive effect, right? If, if we see yeah. that slight drop between, oh, I started my period at, you know, let's say, 140 pounds and at the end of my period i'm like you know 137 and i'm like oh shit that's really cool <laughs> yeah um, another thing that i'll do with them is compare their weight uh when they started their period last month compared to this month or the spike that we see month to month because you can you know, be tracking all of that for them so you can show them like okay yeah you spiked up to 140 but when you were on your period last month 142 you were- or 145 yeah yeah and so you can help them also see, okay, you're still improving as you go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You definitely have to take that. Um, so I've got one one question for you, Jen, before we can sort of like wrap this up is that, um, like I said at the start, there's a, good, there's, a, there's a lot of like more emphasis around sort of like putting females in the forefront these days. And it's great. I think it's amazing because like, you know, as the, as the big, as the big court, uh, goes right men are from mars women are from you know venus right like we're, we're, ba- we're very two distinct different creatures even though we are both you know we're both humans um so are there any um specific i guess nutrients that women or females in general should look at that males shouldn't really be taking or you know like or of or male shouldn't even be worrying something that does come to mind. And um, I've just been digging, digging deeper into that rabbit hole over the last couple of months. I'm um, trying to learn more about female hormones and stuff like that is like the supplement called like Vitex. And um, I know that uh, it's starting to pop up a little bit more. It's this like magical female hormonal supplement that will, f- that, you know, they won't fix everything, but it's good. Like it claims it's good. Like I go and examine, I read it. And it's like, Oh, it's not as bad is what my I thought it was like another placebo, but um, yeah, thoughts or any other basic like supplementations that females should really be focusing on that males generally don't really need to worry. Like folic acid, for example. Yeah, folic acid. Know? For another example, folic acid. acid yeah. A big one, especially if the uh, childbearing age uh, and they're you know wanting to get pregnant at some point, folic acid is a big one for the ladies um, because the the folic acid plays the biggest impact on the neural tube development during that first trimester. And a lot of times, um, if they're not particularly trying, they may have one of those surprise babies. I don't know how it happens. Magic. Um, but pregnant, not quite aware of it. So, you know, women of childbearing age taking a folic acid supplement is a good idea. And most of your multi-mineral, multivitamin supplements are going to have a solid amount of folic acid in them. Mm. So that 
you know, just, just in case one of those surprises shows up, you're ready. All of your prenatal vitamins are going to be very high in, in the folic acid. Um, another one is your omega-3s. Uh, if you're someone who does not consume a lot of seafood, uh, avocados, flaxseed, things like that, taking, um, I usually recommend an EPA DHA supplement as opposed to a fish oil supplement because a lot of your fish oil supplements are going to be rancid. That's why they smell when you open them and they give you those fish burps. It's because it's actually rancid fat and that's not going to give you um, the eicosanoids that you're trying to get. So, you know, with your, your ladies of childbearing age, again, it's really important and all females, you know, it's really important, uh, but particularly, you know, you got to think about fetal brain development. Uh, important to get those EPAs, DHAs in. And like we've talked about throughout the whole podcast, iron, calcium, vitamin D. Three people. <laughs> we need those. Even if you're not thinking about children, the ladies really need to make sure that they're getting in those three supplements. Mm, that's cool. Well, to, to wrap up the podcast, Jen, I know we've been spending a good solid hour on this. We generally always ask our guest, and hence the title of the podcast is Taking Things Back to Square One. What, what would be your main what will be the main thing that you would tell the ladies out there if there's one thing that you want to take it back to basics back to square one and to be a healthier i wouldn't even use the word individual be a healthier female as a whole what are some key points that they need to focus on be it maybe from a nutrition standpoint or maybe the way you approach um, yourself as a human being or could it be from a workout standpoint what would those big pointers be the biggest thing would probably be when you're thinking about physical activity, make sure you enjoy it. Okay. Physical activity should not be something you hate. So, you know, if doing CrossFit is just a chore for you, you hate it, you hate the workouts, you hate every single aspect of it. That's probably not the exercise for you. Pick something you enjoy. If what you enjoy is doing Zumba, go to Zumba, do, do something that is fun for you because your, your physical activity, that should be your downtime. That should be your fun time. And there's so many different ways to get in your physical activity that if what you're doing is not fun, try something else. It's okay. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to do Olympic lifting. You don't have to do any of these, you know, something that you don't find enjoyable. There's plenty of other activities. Find something fun. Just get out there and be active. Most days of the week, find something you enjoy and get out there and just be active. Mm. Mm. That's great. Well, that's all from us today. Um, before we leave, this is obviously something that um, Jen is not very active in social media, but where can people find you? Where, where can people get help? And again, caveat here is that I have uh, been coached by Jen in the past and I've sort of spoke to her off air and I want to get back on it again. But if people want to know more, uh, what, are some, what are some means to reach out to you or get to know more or maybe get help from you? So uh, renaissanceperiodization.com is the company website. Um, so you can always obviously go on there and sign up for coaching. I am on Instagram, drjencase.rpstrong uh, or just jencase.rpstrong. Um, I do post a lot of pictures of my dogs, but he's adorable. Oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on the RP site, you'll see a lot more of the uh, science side of things. My social media tends to be just goofy. So those are the best places to look. Dog pictures are not a bad reason to follow someone. Just saying. No, not yeah. at all. Especially yeah. if they're good Absolutely. dog pictures. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you like this episode, give it a like, give it a thumbs up, share on whatever platform that you're watching on the YouTube, Spotify, Apple podcast. Um, until next time, thanks, Jen, for coming on. 
Thank you.